Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, I am joined by Ronan O'Brien, the founder of Zatori Results. Ronan, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. So typical fashion of this show is we go back to chapter one, work away from there. What I mean by that is we started early influences and naturally work away from there. So you grew up in Dublin? Yep. What were your early days like growing up in Dublin? Any favorite memories? No, I had pretty good childhood. Yeah, like great childhood when I was a kid, surrounded with friends. Very early on, around 13, got interested in radio and DJing. And there's a few pirate radio stations, Pulse FM, back in the day that we, we were, I was involved with. And that kind of kept me on a very um, straight and narrow path, so to speak, that I was so obsessed with radio and music and DJing that I never really kind of did anything but concentrate on that. Uh, now didn't have a license to, to be on air uh, which was one of the small inkling things that you know when you're a teenager you're not so fussed about but it was very well respected and listened to back in the day nice you mentioned radio DJ. you have any early influences of people you looked up to that you one day aspired to potentially take their seat not necessarily it's like at around i started i became friends with a guy called mark mccabe and he had a, he was involved in the same radio station and, and i fell under his wing a little bit and he gave me a bit of guidance and gave me my first show and i was so chuffed that i was you know allowed to be on air but the show they gave me was like 6am on a sunday morning there was very few people listening and nobody particularly caring but for me, that meant that I wouldn't go out on Saturday. I'd prep for it, the hours I'd put in. Compared to now when I'm on radio, I might put in 10 or 15 minutes of prep before a show. But I put in like hours to do this 6 a.m. slot, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. on a Sunday with very few listeners. And in fairness to Mark, he set his alarm clock at some stage during the show, wake up, listen to one or two links when the presenter's on air, give me a bit of feedback and go back to bed. And I'd swear that he'd be up for the three hours listening intently. So I'd be on my top behavior and best game, <laughs> which looking back now was, was so naive, but, uh, but it set me on a really good path. And, and I really look back fondly on those days. All professionals put in hours of practice and I'm sure it's paid off now, but uh, was there anything in your early childhood that had you leaning towards and express an interest in DJing slash radioing? No, not particularly. There was no particular, like any kid, I liked music. I was very interested in it. It was just a way of expressing myself. And, and once you get into a hobby, you tend to go down a rabbit hole sometimes. So I just became obsessed with every song and then got better radio shows. And then as I progressed my teenage years, I'd be on the drive time slot for Monday to Friday and, and doing seven to 10 nightclub DJ gigs a week. So we're doing an early and a late on a Saturday night. And it, it was brilliant. Uh, it was fantastic to be young and in all these clubs and be doing the, the main sets and having an agent and all that kind of stuff. So it was fabulous at the time. And I really look back on those days fondly. Like you couldn't ask for a better job at that period of your life. Yeah, we've actually crossed paths with a couple of people. Rafiq, through my research, is a really good friend of yours. Um, yeah. I've got I've gotten to chat with him, uh, have drinks with him a couple of times. But uh, also through my research, here's what I found out. Uh, you've been to places like Hong Kong, Austria, Vegas, used to be a DJ. What's one thing you're into or curious about that not a lot of people would know about you? 
That's a good question. I don't know. I'm mad about Japan in general. I love the Japanese culture. I love cooking and studying under some master sushi chefs before, which I suppose I've never said publicly. My second date with my wife, I brought her to Japan for three weeks. And that was only because everyone said that as a first date is a terrible idea. But for me and her, it just made sense. She lived in London. I lived in Dublin. I was planning on going there. I said, look, come along. And it never really occurred to me that it, it, it would be something very serious or that it wouldn't work out. I was like, look, we might get on as friends or we might get on better, but either way, and, and all of our friends said, this is crazy. And I was like, worst case scenario, if we don't get on, we can both just wander on our own separate ways. But but luckily, or as it turns out, should I say, because neither of us were really looking for a relationship, but it did work out so well that we ended up, you know, getting married uh, a couple of years later. Wow, congrats. That's pretty cool. Is the Tory, the, the business you're uh, in charge of or own at the moment, Uh, You've mentioned in previous interviews that it is your 10th company. Do you come from a family of entrepreneurs? My dad owned his own business. I don't know if I consider him an entrepreneur. I think he did it as needs must. And as such, I was in in an environment where you did work for yourself growing up and he worked excessively hard. So that work ethic came into my into my behavior it, it was just the norm for me and he's always done long hours which has knocked on effect to, that I still do long hours myself and I, I would consider expected of an entrepreneur to, to put in those long hours but no I wouldn't say that there was any pressure to become an entrepreneur I'd say I'm dyslexic so I didn't get on well in school uh, for me the Irish education system I'm quite against in terms of it's about regurgitating information so reading something and giving back someone else's opinion rather than your own in fact, in college, I failed a course three times because I strongly disagreed with the lecturer's interpretation of uh, Dr. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And the third time I passed the course by just not putting in my opinion and putting the same thing I'd written the first three times. So we had a bit of a battle of wills there. But I knew I was never going to get the, the top job working for someone else because, you know, of the, the fact that I'm not educationally first honours. I'm in the, the half of the class that makes the other half look good. And so it it made sense to me to work for myself and for the freedom as well of time. I think it was quite important to me that if you're working for someone else, you you don't get that. You've mentioned dyslexia. Now looking back, anyone that's in your position that's in school not doesn't conform to the very small percentile that it suits and has dyslexia. I'm assuming it's a strength to you now. What would you say to someone sitting in a class that's 13 to 18 years old that has that and thinks that they don't have a chance at making it? I think it was very unfair the way that the teachers approved. I think it's changed a lot since, but the teachers treated me like I was stupid. I remember having conversations with a teacher who thought I should do foundation level and I was doing higher level and that was it. And there was no middle ground of let's do ordinary. It was like he wanted yeah. me to do foundation to make his job easier. And I didn't feel I was there just to make his job easier. And that I really wanted to go to college to study business and I needed to do higher level to get the points to get into UCD. And I just remember bashing my head off the wall so many times trying to follow what I thought was my path. But look, it, dyslexia is just your brain is wired differently. Uh, as a result, you're going to have to learn to do things differently. If you can't spell a word, you'll find a different way of explaining the same situation. You need to get more information then in fewer lines because it takes a lot longer to write an essay so my essays would be one page when another kid's might be 10 but I try to pack as much into as few words as possible so it taught me to function a little bit and that helps with entrepreneurialism because you're trying to find a quicker faster way of achieving something than the next guy or than the existing uh, status quo 
touched on UCD. I know that you did BCom and UCD. You've also done a course from Harvard as well. Nowadays, continuing to learn or invest in yourself, are there any events you go to, podcasts you listen to, books you read that ensures that you're ahead of the curve? Yeah, so I should qualify that very quickly that I'm not a Harvard grad or anything like that. I attended a course for uh, one or two days over there and I was just blown away by the, the quality of the lectures and, and the, the way that they teach and the thought that goes into it. So I just don't want to pretend I'm something I'm not. In terms of executive education, yeah, I'm pretty vivacious about reading, which is ironic for a person that's dyslexic because it takes me longer to read a book. Saying that, I really try to get through maybe uh, five to 15 books a month and I have done this for the last 10 years mostly about business uh, and psychology so I, I use audible an awful lot or audiobooks and so whenever I'm in the car if I'm not on the phone uh, there's an audiobook playing I made that agreement with myself uh, about 12 years ago when I bought my first really fancy car I said look this is an investment but it's a university on wheels and when I'm in this car I'm ah. going to be paying paying back for it uh, and so now when I'm out, if I go for a long walk on my own, there'll be headphones in. Often when I'm working, if it's something that I can manage to multitask with, I'll have an audiobook in my back, uh, in my ears, and I'll be sucking it in and, and, and trying to improve myself. So that's one thing that I think is really important. It, it, it's very clear to me that if you meet a salesperson, I know you're in sales. Uh, if you meet a salesperson that has no interest in reading sales books or learning about sales, their trajectory is is very you know, obvious. And then the guy that's out there learning new techniques, reading about other industries, trying to apply that knowledge from a different industry into theirs, they're the guys that are accelerating. And the next question when you talk about books is people say, look, what books are you reading? Give me advice on what books I should read. And the answer is the books only work at a certain point of your life to answer the questions that you're in. So if you've got an issue about marketing, great, read a marketing book. If you're talking about leadership, cool, Jacko Wilnick, Extreme Ownership is brilliant. But it's not relevant if you're not running a team and trying to lead people. So there's no point in reading it. So I go back and reread books and get different bits of information out of them because it's more applicable to that point in my in my journey. So that, that's one thing. And then the other thing I do, and I know a couple of your guests previously have mentioned this, but I'm involved with this Entrepreneur of the Year. I'm on the board for that. And I was a finalist in 2012. So going back uh, nine, 10 years almost now. Um, and every year they have a CEO retreat and I go away on that and we get some fantastic speakers in. But we also get to meet with other entrepreneurs and people that are in different journeys of their life. So it's amazing to talk to other entrepreneurs and surround yourself with smarter people and the information that you can get from people that have just been down that road, had the problem before and found the solution. And if you can ask the right questions, it's incredible the results you can get. You said a term that I think you should patent right now before the car manufacturers come after you, and it's university on wheels. They might use that on their marketing going forward. That was brilliant. EY Entrepreneur, you said you're on the board. Any aspiring entrepreneurs or current entrepreneurs that are thinking about putting themselves forward for any awards, doesn't have to be that award, what would you tell them? It depends on the awards. Um, so there's loads of awards that we get offered and, and 90% we decline. Most of the time they're trying to say, look, you're up for this award, buy a, a table of 10 at 600 euro a seat and give us six grand and then you can be a finalist for these awards. I've attended some local awards down where our business is based and uh, the local bakery beat us for the e-commerce award, which I enjoyed thoroughly because they didn't have an e-commerce website. Cool. And so it, it does depend on the awards and it's great, as others have said, it's great for your staff to know that they're being acknowledged. It's great for your clients to know that they 
correctly chose to work with the top guys in the industry. So all of that is really important. Uh, EY Entrepreneur of the Year is is just top class. It, it's on another level and it's very hard for somebody externally looking in because you'll see the TV shows and you'll see the radio interviews and you'll see how incredible some of the people are. But once you're in, you, you almost have to take the people aside and go, it's not about that. It is 100% about the alumni. It's 100% about the network. It's the fact that you can pick up a phone and say, hey, look, you're in this group, this club, and I've got a question that you might be able to help me with. Can you give me 10 minutes of your time? But you're doing that to, to people that are so experienced in the specific problem and challenge you're having. The 10 minutes of their time could be three or four months of, of struggle otherwise. And a great example of that for me is um, Owen Cook, who uh, ran the Pallet Network or owned the Pallet Network. He's still involved, but he's changed his ownership status. And I was having an issue around staffing. And uh, he said, oh, what's the story there? And I said, look, this is what's going on. And he goes, oh, I've had that problem. Do one, two, three. And I said, no, I've been working on this for months and it's such a pain in the neck. And he goes, no, no, one, two, three, that's it. And I went off, implemented what he said. And like in a paragraph, he saved me four or five months of trying to figure this out for myself. So I just found that so powerful. And then one of the things within that club that I do, we have a group mentoring mastermind kind of session where we get together uh, with small groups. Uh, and this is an opt-in, not everybody does it, but I said, this is something I want. So being on the board, I said, look, I'm going to throw this out there and create it. So we've got groups of about 10 to 12 people and they meet up uh, every two or two months or so. And we just say, look, what's going on in your businesses? Where are your goals? What are your challenges? Is there anything people want to bring up? And then we bounce it around the table. So you've got a table of 10, you know, really successful CEOs and they'll say, I go this way with it. I do that. Have you thought of this? I can put you in contact with why. And it's rocket fuel. Like it really is. You come in with an idea and during that meeting, you can solidify it or you can listen to someone else's problem and go, I didn't know, but actually that reflective problem that I have. And then someone else will say, I've dealt with it before and here's how you deal with it. And I, I just find it so powerful to have those masterminds um, and it's been really helpful in my kind of career, but also in the companies that I'm involved in. Phenomenal. I watched the video on you and you talked about how you left your DJ days behind. And I'm sure you probably did still do some here and there as a hobby, but in this particular clip, you said you left your DJ be- days behind, started a business. Two part question. One, as a bet, was it really a bet that got you to start the business? And two, why e-commerce? So funnily enough, you mentioned Rafiq earlier because Rafiq was the one who made the bet with me. The two of us were DJing in a nightclub and it was a really big club out in Swords. I think it was about 1,200 to 3,000 people uh, at the time that we're going to it. And it was Halloween and we wanted to to go the extra mile. So we had the big stage set up and we wanted to wear costumes. Ironically, we wanted to wear costumes with huge heads on them, which in hindsight, given how sweaty those gloves can get. But but that was the naivety of it. And uh, there was nowhere that we could get the type of stuff we wanted in Ireland. We knew that people wanted to go out and party and these kind of clubs were, were ideal for costume parties around Halloween. But So he had a lot of technology knowledge. And uh, I said, look, I've got this other telecom thing on the go at the moment. And I'm DJing an awful lot. And I had a full-time job as well, working with my father. It's just like, don't time. He said, look, I bet we could do this. Like, like you're always saying you, you're, you're interested in business. Like, why don't you just go and start this? So, yeah, so we did it for a bet. I won the bet, thankfully. But I guess that the real win was having taken the leap, the rewards of actually owning the company. Amazing. And what continues to drive you at, at this present time? 
I like the challenge of it. I love running the business. Uh, I'm not the CEO. Recently, I stepped down for, for a period. Uh, I've been CEO for about 12 years and uh, a new guy, Steve Kyo, has come in. Uh, he's the interim CEO at the moment. Just to give me a break from what I was doing, I also wanted to see how does the business function under another uh, another leadership status. It's very interesting because it, you can own a job if the whole business revolves around one person. Um, but if you can step away and put someone else in your job, then it's a business entity on its own. And I really wanted to see, could it stand and, and even accelerate to better without me being in that position? So it was a fantastic experiment that's paid off really well. And most of that is down to the fact that we chose really well with the new CEO is incredibly talented. But look, I, I enjoy what I do. I enjoy starting up uh, businesses. I'm, I'm doing a little bit of angel investing. I'm enjoying mentoring the CEOs who are on the early path of, of the journey that I've already been on. It, it is fantastic to do it. It's fantastic to own your days and to own your time and say, look, this is what I'm doing because I want to do it. And if I don't want to do something, I can bring in somebody else to help me with it or someone who's enjoying doing the aspects of stuff that I don't love doing. It's incredibly freeing, but at the same time, incredibly challenging to be an entrepreneur. It's not easy. The hours are ridiculously long and people don't appreciate when people say, look, I'm working 100 hour weeks, that they don't appreciate that that really looks like on a day to day basis. If you divide 100 by seven, you're talking 16, 18 hour days. Some days, occasionally you work through the night and just power on through. It has to be done. But then ask any single mother or single parent out there. You're not getting eight hours sleep if you're a single parent. You've got these responsibilities. When the baby cries, you go to it. It's exactly the same analogy for a company. When there's an emergency and fire, you put it out. When there's something that needs taken care of and attention and TLC, you get on it and you do it and you do it out of you know love and wanting to do it. It's it's no big kind of when your kid cries, you don't go to it out of servants or with any kind of hatred about it you're like oh i want to soothe you i want to get this done i want to win i want to enjoy the time with it yeah if i had to pick one of three words to describe you or three words to describe you one of those words would be networking you seem to be great at networking what's one challenge how do i phrase this what's one challenge or objection you've come up against in the last let's say 12 to 18 months that you didn't expect to come up against and how did you overcome it? It's a good question. I'm not sure I'd answer it, to be honest with you, because every day I come up with hundreds of challenges and that's what entrepreneurialism is. It's being a small, nimble company that finds loads of hurdles and then jumps over them. If you have a challenge, you decide what way you want to address it. You don't need to win every fight. You don't need to take on every challenge. If you meet someone in a networking scenario and, and they're no crack or they're rude or whatever, like we've fired companies we've worked with recently just because I don't like the rep and I was like look life is too small I'm not going to spend any more time on the phone with this company we're spending seven figures with this company and the guy is rude to me I was like fine we just go find someone else to work the company itself is great I just don't like the rep he was rude he doesn't like me we don't need to be I don't need to be in an environment and I don't need to deal with that hurdle so we'll take our money we'll go elsewhere and we'll go back to that same company in a few years if the the relationship gets better if that guy learns a little bit more about sales or if a new guy comes in which is more likely and so these things happen but I, i don't see hurdles and what you want to be as an entrepreneur is somebody that really loves being outside of their comfort zone so when you say oh you're good at networking i like meeting new people i like the uncertainty of finding out what it is that makes them tick i'm interested genuinely interested in them so, yeah. I mean, I could sit down with Leslie Codd, who runs a mushroom company, and for half an hour, grill him on the ins and outs of mushroom manufacturing. And he's like, I've never had anybody genuinely show such interest in something that, you know, is mushroom farming. And I was like, it's fascinating. And he's like, most people don't think like that. 
And I was like, how can you come up with the idea of mushrooms and make it into a multi-million dollar business? It, to me, it's incredible. I, I get outside of my comfort zone as often as possible. I, I pretty much live outside my comfort zone. As, as soon as it's within my realm of comfort, you can set some parameters around it and delegate it out. Two questions left. I'd like you to imagine it's the end of the decade. So it's now 2030 and you're looking back on the previous decade. So the last nine to 10 years, what would you, you can answer this personally or professionally. What would you like to be looking back on? I've got kids and that's very important to me that I spend time and how they grow up. When I was in my twenties, I had this whole billionaire dream. I think I've adjusted the course there a little bit. I'm not interested in spending all my time. I've seen guys that are really successful and really inspiring, but I don't want to be them. I don't want to be that billionaire that does nothing but uh, work. So I want to get my balance a bit more. And that was part of bringing a CEO to take what was a workaholic hour number and bring it down to something I thought more reasonable. So I'd like to think in 10 years, I look back to see it's quite balanced. I'd like to, to be proud of what we've achieved and the way we've achieved it. There is no way that we change our morals or ethics around where we want to go and how we achieve it. But I, I'm quite happy. I enjoy doing what I'm doing now. So I live in the moment. I don't want to look too far forward or too far back. We've definitely got our goals, our business directions continue expanding really proud of some of the work that we're doing with some investments I've made and, and those companies are changing the world uh, really proud of what we do in Zatori we're starting out a fulfillment uh, side which is naturally a company is its own entity it's a, its own personality and it's started developing we, we're really good at fulfilling our own product essentially what Zatori does is we get someone to a website get their credit card details and put something in a box so that's what the company does yes the costume shop.ie is all about fancy dress and parties and making people smile but realistically if you don't have the core of those three elements in Zatori that doesn't work and then we apply that to the medical industry and we sell wheelchairs and rise recliners and rollators to make people's lives easier and it's incredible that you just you know have somebody go to google or go to the internet buy your product get the delivery the next day give you the money but then they write a thank you card who does that nowadays and that happens all the time with us so the staff love the fact that we've done something, we've got a little bit of profit, but we've made a profound difference. And there's all these gadgets that people don't know about that can make their life incredibly better at the twilight years of their age, or if they're having a disability or temporary or permanent. So I love doing things like that and finding angles to add value. And once you add value in society, the money flows naturally afterwards. I'm going to sneak in an extra question. And it's, you've got a number of different business sectors on your website here. You, you've already talked about the mobility shop, the costume shop, you've got, or at least you had a, a, a trophy shop, a pet shop, amongst many others. How do you identify a segment in the market and go, I want to set up a shop for that? Yeah, it's a really, uh, really interesting way that we approach this. First of all, decide, like, we'll try to be our own customers or, or assume or create demand. So is there demand there? Do people want these products? And what does the competition look like? We're trying to find as a gap in the market. So there might be, there's other people that make trophies, but buytrophies.ie just does it very well. So we're cheaper, we're quicker to turn the stuff around. It's about, look, we want to reward people. So if you run a big company and you give, if you're a Google or a Facebook or something like that, and you give your staff a 500 euro bonus, they'll add that to a pile of money that you've already given them and go, great, I deserve that. Whereas if you hand a trophy and the trophy might be 40 or 50 euro, they can put that proudly on their mantelpiece at home. And when the wife says, look, you're useless, they'll go, uh-uh, I've got a trophy here that says otherwise. So it's an incredible way of, of just saying, look, we really do appreciate and understand you. It adds value. It shows employees and it shows the kids that they win the medals, that they're so valued. It, it physically, you know, puts something tangible in their hands 
rather than just saying, look, we appreciate you and here's some of the, the money that comes in. And it's always very funny to me to see some of the, the, the out there trophies that come in. So we had one trophy uh, a couple of years ago where the dad was like really keen to get the, the trophy out. It was like, congratulations, grounded for three months. And he had a trophy made up to give to the kid on announcement of, you know, whatever he had done wrong. And I said, no, oh, that's brilliant. And we often get grannies making one medal for their kid to say grandson soccer player of the year. And that, that's what it's about. It's, it's about adding that little bit of happiness, that little bit of value. And um, so what we do is we see, is there a demand? Are people going into, you can go into the keyword tools in Google and see, are people typing this kind of query in? So is there customers out there looking for these products? And are, is the demand being met? So very quickly, you can say, look, this is how many people are looking for us. This is the competition. This is the power of those competitions. So here's what we think we could do better. Here's where we think we could fit in the market. You, you can do an analysis, get a market gap done very quickly and say, look, there is a huge opportunity or there is no opportunity. So to go back to the Buy Trophies one, when we launched the website, six minutes after we launched, we had our first sale. And it was for over 250 quid. We were impressed because the average person should take more than six minutes to go to the website, fill in the trophy engraving details and check out. Once you get going, you really, I don't take as much risk as people think I do. But every time I start a new business or invest in new business, people are saying, that's very risky. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. And I was like, no, I've done my homework already. This is, it might not be the biggest thing in the world, but it's definitely not going to fail. So it's an interesting approach to have, use the data that's available there to establish the market demand rather than just build it and they will come and attitudes. And I see a lot of that. And for me, it doesn't work. It's too high risk. So I think if you, if you do it correctly and safely, you can, you can de-risk things very quickly. Your house is burning down, but your loved ones are all safe and you can only save one item. What one item is that going to be? I don't know. I'm not really that attached to material stuff. There's very little that I couldn't buy again. And so it will be something for the kids or whatever. I might be bad enough to say it's my laptop, but obviously I could just buy a new laptop and restore it from the cloud. I spend an awful lot of time with, you know, my computers and working long hours. No, I, I don't think I have a particular item that can't be replaced. I definitely enjoy my cars. I enjoy, we have a really nice house here. But there's not, it is all about people and relationships. I would obviously want my wife and my kids to be safe and then have whatever they need. What I have is the knowledge. I could start again. I could lose everything tomorrow and I'd be fine and back and established within a year doing well for myself. And it's not impossible that these things will happen, that companies can collapse, especially if you're, you want to be going fast enough that you're always, you're outside your comfort zone there, that it's a risk. But no, material things, not, not really bothered. Ronan, I've had a true pleasure getting to know you a little better over the last 30, 32 minutes, and I wish you nothing but the best going forward. Thank you for your time today. Thanks very much.